Ah, there we go. I can hear now. Excellent. Well, let's begin then. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Where we spent the last two weeks looking at a very, very critical piece of our history, of the Earth's history, of the universe history, and that is corruption. About 6,000 years ago, the first two humans, Adam and Eve, they changed their minds about God as to whether God is really good, holy, worthy of total worship. They thus exalted themselves, rebelled, and ate the forbidden fruit. This was the fall and the original sin. Last week, we more specifically examined the effects of the fall. Man and his world were comprehensively cursed. Yet God also showed mercy and even promised a saving seed to come in the midst of those curses. Now, these effects of the fall were inaugurated immediately, even if some of their effects would only be appreciated later. But in today's lesson, we're going to see a dramatic example of some of those effects. We're going to see just how much man changed as a result of the fall. The title of today's lesson is Cain Kills Abel. Though this account is another one of the great tragedies of history, it's also another clear display of the goodness of God. In examining this historical episode, we will see, just as Israel did originally, more about who we are as sinners in desperate need of God, and more about who God is as the holy but merciful Savior. Here's our agenda for today's class. We're going to first observe our passage, Genesis 4, 1 to 15. We'll focus in on some interpretation questions, especially why did Cain get angry and why was his sacrifice rejected? And then finally, we'll discuss an important apologetic question. Where did Cain get his wife? Let's pray now before we go on. But God, we come before you, God, and we acknowledge again our dependence on you. We are thankful for your word, but we need your spirit to help us understand it. Help us appreciate it as, it, as we ought to, and help us to uh, apply it into our lives. God, I, I pray that you would help me to be able to explain your word now, and help us to be able to comprehend it as we ought. Lord, I pray that we would see your great holiness, our sinfulness, but also your great goodness as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start by turning to and reading the account of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. So take your Bibles, turn to Genesis 4, and we'll just read verses 1 to 15. Genesis 4, 1 to 15. Follow along with me as I start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, that is, Yahweh. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was the keeper of flocks, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer, and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to Yahweh, 
my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So Yahweh said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain, sent no one finding him would slay him. A familiar story, but let's come at it again with fresh eyes, starting with basic observations. Notice that these events take place right after Adam and Eve are cursed and driven from the garden for their sin. And notice what great happening takes place in verse 1. A son is born to Adam and Eve. This is wonderful. The human race will continue. It's just as God said. God's kept his promise. They have a son. And who is this firstborn? His name is Cain. The name Cain sounds like the Hebrew word for acquired or gotten. Thus Eve says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of Yahweh. Notice that Eve soon has another son in verse 2, Abel. The name Abel is just like the Hebrew word for breath or vanity. If you know Ecclesiastes and that famous phrase from the book, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's actually the same word as Abel's name, breath, vanity. Now, considering what happens in our account, that name, Abel, will prove sadly appropriate. Notice that each son takes up an occupation in verse 2. Cain becomes a farmer. Abel becomes a shepherd. And notice each son brings an offering to God in verses 3 to 4. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. What's the fruit of the ground? We're just talking crops, plants, fruits and vegetables. He brings this to God. Meanwhile, Abel brings firstlings from the flock, including their fat portions. Firstlings, that would be the firstborn animals, and the fat portions, that would be a particular part of the animal and its meat. Notice that in verses 4 to 5, God accepts. He regards Abel's offering, but he has no regard for Cain's. And how does Cain respond to this rejection in verse 5? Very angry and a fallen countenance. Now, what is a fallen countenance? Yeah, a sad face or even an angry face. It's a dejected look. A countenance is just an older word for face. So he was visibly upset based on the outcome of this sacrifice. He had a fallen countenance. But notice that God goes after Cain, after observing this, and he gives Cain counsel in verses 6 to 7. God reminds Cain, Cain, you too could be accepted if you do right. God warns Cain that sin seeks to control him, and he urges Cain to rule over his sinful desires. But how does Cain respond to God's counsel? Well, he ignores it. Because in the very next, verse, very next verse, Cain goes and murders his brother. Now, we don't get any details about that. We don't know how he did it other than he spoke to his brother and went out to the field, and then he killed him there. God comes to Cain in verse 9 and asks Cain where his brother is. And notice Cain's two responses in that same verse. I don't know, which is a what? A lie. And then he says, am I my brother's keeper? Now, that's not an actual question. That's rhetorical. He's not looking for some sort of explanation from God. This is sarcasm. And the expected answer is, no, I'm not my brother's keeper. Why are you asking me? Consider, what a way to answer the God of the universe. In verse 10, God reveals that he knows exactly where Abel is and what Cain has done. God then punishes Cain for Abel's murder in verses 11 and 12. But, notice, not by putting Cain to death. Instead, there are two curses pronounced from God on Cain in verse 12. Cain's farming will now be cursed. The ground will no longer yield to Cain. And Cain is doomed to be a fugitive and a wanderer. Now notice Cain's response to this in verses 13 to 14. Notice what we do not see. Cain does not confess his sin, does not repent, does not cry out for forgiveness. 
But what does he do? Cries out that his punishment is too severe. Besides his farming being cursed and his being a wanderer and, as he says, no longer being before the face of Yahweh, notice specifically what Cain fears. Whoever finds him will kill him. Now, why would someone want to kill Cain? Certainly would be to avenge Abel's death. It'd be because he's committed this great injustice and they want to make it right. Now, who specifically would want to avenge Abel's death? Maybe Abel's other family members? The rest of Adam's family. And which humans on earth are part of Adam's family? All of them. All of them. We're told in the end of Genesis 3 that Eve is the mother of all living. <clears throat> so of the people on earth, all of them have come from Adam and Eve. They're all part of the family, and thus they're all relatives of Abel. You killed Abel. Why, not, why should we not seek vengeance on you? Why should we not punish you for what you did? So Cain has great reason to fear because every human on earth has a good reason to kill him. Now to this, God could have said, uh, tough Cain, you reap what you sow. But God doesn't do that. God instead puts Cain's fears to rest with two provisions in verse 15. He promises to avenge Cain sevenfold should he be killed. And he gives Cain a distinguishing mark of divine protection. Now, considering these verses as a whole, you may have noticed that there are many parallels between this account and the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Both accounts feature sins involving a pair of people. Both episodes involve the destruction of another, Satan of the human race, Cain of Abel. In each account, there's a tragic choice, but before that, a warning from God. But both warnings are disregarded. Adam and Cain both willfully rebel against God's commands. And in both accounts, God goes after the sinners by first asking questions to which God already knows the answers. But to those questions, neither Adam or Eve or Cain respond in confession and repentance to God's questioning. Instead, they avoid responsibility and shift blame. In both accounts, we see a curse resulting as punishment from God. Though there is also, in both accounts, special and merciful provisions from God for those who have sinned. The covering with animal skins in Genesis 3, and in here, the mark on Cain. And in both instances, the sinners are allowed to continue living. With these observations, let's now turn to some interpretation questions on our passage. First, why does Cain kill Abel? At its root, it's jealousy. Well, I say root, but we'll say more about that in just a second. Certainly what we're seeing here is jealousy. The passage doesn't explicitly identify jealousy as the motive, but we can infer it based on Cain's anger and the fact that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God and Cain's was not. Cain was so filled with hatred toward his own brother for receiving what Cain did not receive, that Cain was willing to kill him. But let's take this a step further. What was at the root of Cain's jealousy? If jealousy was the root of the murder, what was at the root of the jealousy? Because consider, unless we identify the root, we might think that the circumstances forced Cain to be angry and jealous. That seeing someone someone else succeed when you don't automatically creates jealousy or provokes jealousy. But that's not it. We know that no one's forced to be jealous. What was at the root of Cain's jealousy then? And really, what is at the root of all sinful anger? There are probably a few ways we can answer that question, but I think the one that's most evident from our passage is that this comes from pride. Cain's jealousy, his hateful, murderous anger comes from pride. Consider 
the attitude that Cain is displaying in this passage, especially with his sacrifice. It's immediately after his sacrifice is rejected that he gets angry. Why? Because his thinking is, I deserve to have my sacrifice accepted. I deserve success, even with God. I deserve to get what I want because I'm me. Therefore, I cannot abide others succeeding and enjoying what I do not. Such is a terrible injustice that must be recompensed with the destruction of the one getting in my way and in the way of my own exaltation and fulfillment. You know, it's interesting. One of the classes I'm in right now in seminary is advanced biblical counseling. And the teacher mentioned the other day a study involving self-esteem and criminals. Society often posits that those who do evil, those who commit crimes or bully others, do so because they have low self-esteem. But in one study that actually followed up with various criminals, murderers, rapists, etc., they found that these people had actually very high self-esteem. They had a very high opinion of themselves. And it was actually because of that that they committed their crimes. Their victims were the very persons who impinged, who infringed on that view, that high view of themselves. Oh, she makes me feel bad. I'm going to put her back in her place. I'll even kill her. We're seeing the same thing in this account. And it's even more evident in Cain's flippant response to God's questioning. Cain treats the creator God, the Lord, the holy judge, like God is a nobody and a nuisance. I don't know what my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? How can Cain speak this way? Is he insane? Does he not know who God is? Well, no, this is the effect of pride. This is because Cain is God in his own mind. Thus Cain becomes angry, not just against Abel, but really against God. Since God was not giving Cain, not doing what Cain thought should be done and giving Cain what he thought he deserved. Now, this is shocking, but it's not too foreign to us, is it? Ask yourselves, have I ever gotten angry at others? when they get what I want? Have I been jealous and resentful of others when they succeed and I don't? Have I even gotten angry at God and tried to spite him because he didn't do what I thought he should do or didn't give me what I wanted, what I felt I needed? Do you realize that when you think this way, feel this way, act this way, do you realize the reason for your anger? It's your pride. You're making yourself out to be greater than God. You've become entitled. Thus, you exercise a warped sense of justice that condemns both God and others for not doing your will. You see, this account of Cain and Abel is another clear picture of what man is as a result of the fall. We're seeing here, really, the depth of man's darkness again. Here, a man commits murder, kills his own brother just because that brother received a blessing and because that brother was more righteous than he. But this same darkness is witnessed all over the Bible, especially of the evil ones against the righteous. Consider, before the flood, what does God lament that the world is filled with? Looks upon the earth and he sees it is filled with violence, people viciously attacking and hurting each other. Later on, Esau, he seeks to kill his brother Jacob over the inheritance. Joseph's 11 brothers, out of jealousy, they seek to put him to death. Uriah, a righteous soldier, one of David's own mighty men, he's murdered by his adulterous king so that king can get safely away with Uriah's wife. And Uriah had done nothing wrong. Of course, our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest example of this. He came to save men, but jealous men, self-seeking men, lynched the Lord for their own ends. So the darkness wasn't just in Cain, 
It's been all throughout the Bible, and it's still so evident today. You can't pull up a news app or read a newspaper without seeing headline after headline of murder, mass murder, domestic murder, men and women killing their own spouses, children, and other family members. It's all over the place. And if we pay attention, we also constantly hear the news of pastors, missionaries, simple Christians being arrested, tortured, and killed. It is righteous persons who did nothing wrong being killed by those who love evil. What's wrong with us? Why is mankind so brutal? Why are we so cruel, so twisted against one another? Well, this is the horror of sin. This is what we are. This is what we are capable of as a result of the fall. This is where we end up when we reject the goodness and holiness of God. And unless mercifully restrained by God, each one of us would become a cruel, murderous, wannabe despot, just like Cain. Now, who will rescue us from this existence, from this darkness of heart, from this body of death? We certainly need a rescuer. The great wickedness of Cain deserved utmost punishment. If Adam and Eve deserved death for their rebellion, surely Cain deserved more. He killed another person, a righteous person, someone made in the image of God. And God would set up this rule after the flood in Genesis 9. Genesis 9, 7, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. But God doesn't kill Cain. It doesn't call for Cain to be killed. In fact, when Cain expresses worry that someone might kill Cain, God instead provides for Cain's life. And the question is, why? Why does God protect and show mercy to Cain? Considering the parallels of Genesis 3, this actually shouldn't be too surprising. This is who God is. God is merciful. God is kind. God is patient. And again, God is giving opportunity for Cain to repent. This is the radical mercy of God on display. Again, in the face of man's sin. It's not as if God was worried about the human population being too low and therefore spared Cain. Now, there are definitely going to be other sons and daughters from Adam. And neither is it because Cain displayed a changed heart before God. We noticed from Cain's response to God's cursing, it was not confessing his sin or repenting at all. Now, Cain is concerned over his crime, to be sure, but only over which part of it? The punishment. The consequences. Instead of, oh, God, my sin is too much for your holiness to endure. He says, oh, God, this punishment is too much for me to endure. Cain doesn't see the magnitude of his sin. He is filled with regret and even sorrow, but not repentance. His only regret is over the consequences of his sin, not the sin itself. And of course, this is what we see all around us today, is it not? So often man's confessions of wrongdoing contain no confessions at all, merely regret at the outcome of the actions. But this is regret and sorrow that does not save. And it is an affront to our righteous creator and God. Have you ever expressed such sham repentance to others, to God? We have on the one hand here then, a clear display of the radical depravity of man and of the radical kindness and mercy of God. God says to Cain, essentially, though I must judge you with a curse for the sake of my own holiness, I will continue to let you live. And I will personally ensure that no man will ever avenge the crime you have committed. When they see this mark on, on you, this mark I will place on you, they will fear my judgment and they will not harm you. This is shocking kindness from God, but that's one of the main themes of the Bible. We call shocking kindness another name, and that's 
grace. God's grace points us here and elsewhere in the scriptures to the worthiness of God to be loved and to be sought after. Really, we could say it this way. Why should you repent of your sin and seek the Lord with all your heart? Because of how great God is. Because especially of his great patience and compassion toward you. It's just as Romans 2 verses 3 to 4 says. Romans 2 verses 3 to 4. Paul says, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, that's various kinds of sin, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God's kindness is specifically designed so that we will repent. But to ignore this great kindness of God and to sin even more because of it is an infinitely egregious crime before the Holy One. And it is why the wrath of God against the unrepentant is so unquenchable. A crime upon a crime. God's patience and mercy used only to increase sin. Therefore, another question you must ask yourself today in light of God's word is, do I, in foolish pride, use God's patience and kindness to me as an excuse to avoid repentance? Oh, haven't been judged yet. Life's still going well. I can continue in my sin. It hasn't gotten too bad yet. I'm not going to repent yet. Is that your attitude? Or ask yourself this, have I instead humbled myself before God for the great evil I have done toward him, despite his kindness toward me? The fact that you have done evil, but God has shown you kindness, that should cause you to humiliate yourself even more before God. Take that tax collector's perspective from the New Testament, who couldn't even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Let's now turn to a related and key question in our passage. Why was Cain's sacrifice rejected and Abel's sacrifice accepted? Before we get to that, we should even ask, why do Cain and Abel know to offer sacrifices to God in the first place? I mean, weren't sacrifices something that God instituted with Moses and Israel? We don't get specific details in the Bible about how mankind first started offering sacrifices to God. But it apparently was a very early concept because we see it elsewhere in the Bible in the lives of people before Moses. Noah, for instance, offers sacrifices to God after the flood and even of what are called clean animals, even though we don't hear about clean and unclean animals until Israel and Moses, much later. Job also offers sacrifices on behalf of the sins of his family to God. And Jacob, after leaving Laban in Genesis 31, offers sacrifices. So this, this shows us that there were certain concepts of sin, cleanness, and sacrifice, even in the first family on earth, long before Moses or Israel. So God had to, at some point, have specifically communicated information about offering and sacrifice to man. Perhaps God did this in remembrance of the fall and of God's immediate provision of covering for man and woman. And perhaps this also was inaugurated in anticipation of God's future promise to save man from the scheme of the serpent. So they know somehow to offer sacrifices to God. But back to our question, what was wrong with Cain's sacrifice that caused God to reject it? Well, because we don't know what information God had already given to man regarding sacrifices, we can't answer this question for sure, absolutely. But we can come up with a probable answer. We can compare the brother's sacrifices, as described here, to what God would later say in the scriptures, especially to Israel. 
Now recall that Cain offers crops, fruit of the ground, and Abel offers animal meat. Cain offers apparently nothing particularly special from the part of the ground. We don't have any specific descriptors. Well, Abel, Abel offers a very specific kind of animal, the firstlings, and a specific part of that animal, the fat portions, the animals with their fat. Now in Exodus and Leviticus, we read that God did ordain Israel to offer both crops and animals to God as sacrifices. When we think about the sacrifice of the Old Testament, we often think of the more bloody animal sacrifices, like the sin offering and the burnt offering. And those were a key and even the majority of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But there's also the grain offering, which was an offering of the fruit of the ground. This was given by God and acceptable to him. Moreover, we learn from these other books of the Torah, Moses's five books, that God also called on Israel to offer to God both of the first fruits of the ground and the firstlings of animals. So though it's often assumed that Cain's sacrifice was rejected because it was not a bloody animal sacrifice, Israel's own law does not support this conclusion. God did accept sacrifices of the fruit of the ground later. So that can't be the reason here. So we still ask, what was wrong with Cain's sacrifice? But there are other portions of scripture that will help us with this issue. A key one, especially, is Hebrews 11.4. Hebrews 11.4 says this, and this is in comment on various persons who displayed faith throughout the Old Testament. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Consider also 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. By this, John says, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. We could also add a few other Old Testament texts. 1 Samuel 15, 22, 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Isaiah 6.6 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And then Proverbs 15.8 The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. What do all these verses emphasize when it comes to sacrifices and God? Is it not that God is more concerned about the heart and life than the sacrifice itself? God does delight in right sacrifice when it is offered from a right heart. But a right sacrifice from a wrong heart gains only the disgust of God. So now I think we can see why Cain's sacrifice was rejected. It's not the fact that Cain's sacrifice was of the fruit of the ground, but because Cain did not truly love God or believe in him. Ultimately, this is about Cain's heart. Cain did not seek the Lord in faith. Because is it not faith for which Abel is specifically praised in the book of Hebrews? Abel offered his sacrifice in faith, in true belief in the greatness, goodness, and faithfulness of God. But this belief was lacking in Cain. Therefore, his sacrifice, even if offered rightly, was to be rejected by God. Now, perhaps Cain's attitude actually did show up in his offering. Because as we observed, Abel brought of the firstlings and the fat portions. This would be the best parts of the animal, very valuable selection. But we don't see any description like that with Cain's offering. These aren't even necessarily the first fruits. They're just an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
Abel apparently purposefully sought to honor God with his sacrifice choices. Well, Cain apparently did not think highly enough of God to show the same purpose and care in his selection of offerings. You know, this is often true of those who hold to good works. When you examine them more closely, you can see that their good works are not really good, not only because they are not offered in faith, but because they are not offered in faith, they're not done in a, in a totally circumspect way. You examine it more closely, you say, hmm, you know, his, he didn't really do a good job with that because his heart was not in it. So what we see here in Genesis 4, then, is not just the first appearance of murder on the earth, but it is also the first appearance of false religion. Because isn't Cain displaying the formula that is evident in all false religions? You know, it's been said by a pastor, it's been said by many, there are really only two religions in the world. There's the religion of faith, and there's the religion of works. There's the religion of God's accomplishment, and there's the religion of man's accomplishment. Cain is of the latter. He's of the attitude that if you just offer the necessary sacrifices, do the right works, say the right prayers, then God has to accept you. God will then bless you. God will give you money. God will give you a good harvest. God will give you kids. God will give you a wife. God will give you a long life, give you salvation, etc. You can work for it. In such a system, you don't have to love God at all. You don't have to believe him to be worthy of total devotion or worship. It's actually quite the opposite. You see that God is one who can be satisfied with some minimal standard. Therefore, he's not that holy. He's not that great. You can do enough to satisfy such a small God. And when you do, you'll get what you want and deserve. Because you're the really important one. You know, it's interesting. For people in such a system, who is it in the world that they often hate the most? Those who truly know God. For those who are in false religions, they often hate those who actually know God because such persons expose false religion for what it is. They are convicted by those who truly know God and truly love him, and therefore they despise him. Is it any wonder that this is what we see in Cain? Not only was Cain pridefully jealous of Abel's success, but Abel's righteous example was a living reproof of Cain's whole false religious system, his whole prideful approach to God. That's what 1 John 3 said, right? He killed him because Abel's deeds were righteous. You see, Cain is the epitome of all those who believe in works-based salvation. Cain did not truly love God. He loved himself, and therefore he hated the true God and all who truly belonged to God. This is another thing we need to notice. In Cain's murder of Abel, Adam and Eve witnessed the beginning of the fulfillment of part of God's curse on the serpent. Not the arrival of the promised saving seed, though I'm sure they wished for that. But what they saw instead was the promised enmity that God said he would put between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That is the godly seed and the seed of the devil. The murder of Abel by Cain was just the first episode in a long history of the sons of the devil opposing the sons of God. Now, praise God, we know from God's promise and many other scriptures that the children of God triumph in Christ in the end. But the children of the devil will definitely rage in the meantime, just as Cain did. So now the question to ask again is, what about you? Which are you? Are you a son of God or a son of the devil? Do you follow in the footsteps of faith-filled Abel? Or do you walk according to works-based Cain? Do you go through the motions of sacrifice and worship as Cain did, even though you deep down do not actually love God? Do you make yourself come here to church, even Sunday school, read your Bible, offer the necessary prayers, do acts of service, all so you can get God off your back or feel better about yourself 
or so that God can give you what you really want? Or is God himself your delight? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 16, the Lord is my portion. He is my inheritance and it is a beautiful inheritance. Do you therefore love the Lord more than life itself? Are you willing, ready and willing to follow in the footsteps of Abel, even to suffer and die for the Lord's sake? Because he's that worthy. He's that good. Do you trust in God's promised rescuing seed, Jesus Christ, to do what you can never do? Pay off your innocent, infinite sin debt and credit you with his own righteous life? Do you believe in Jesus alone to make you acceptable to God? Rejoicing in how God has displayed unthinkable mercy to you, a great sinner. And therefore, do you delight in all manner of good works, not to earn God's favor, but because you believe God is so worthy to be so enjoyed and worshipped? Friends, listen today to God's advice that he gave to Cain. Consider it his own advice to you. God says, if you do well, if you come to me according to my way, the way of faith, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, if you reject my way, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, to own you, consume you, and it will do so. Cain rejected all calls to repentance and was mastered by sin to his own destruction. There's no reason to think that Cain ever repented, even after God's confrontation, the punishment, and God's gracious provision, since the New Testament holds up Cain as an example of evil and an inheritor of wrath. But you do not need to follow in Cain's path. God calls you, as he did Cain, to turn from your sin and your own way and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, submitting every part of your life to him. Have you done that? In summary then, what does the account of Cain's murder of Abel show us today? It shows us more of the devastating horror of sin and our need for rescue from its curse. It shows us more of both God's holy justice and his grace to us who are undeserving rebels, traitors to God. And it shows us more of the only saving gospel, which is salvation by faith in God, not by self-made hypocritical works. Now, before we close, we need to address that frequent apologetic question attached to any discussion of Cain and Abel. Where did Cain get his wife? If you just look down at Genesis 4 again, the two verses after our passage mention that Cain had relations with his wife and fathered a line of descendants. Where did Cain get his wife? Well, from what we discussed earlier, there can only be one answer to this. And what's the answer? Cain married a close relative. Where did he get his wife? From his mom. Cain's wife was his sister, niece, or other close relative. Genesis 3.20 identifies Eve as the mother of all living. And according to Genesis 1.2, the only humans on earth that God created were Adam and Eve. Therefore, the only humans that existed came from the first pair. The sons and daughters of Adam and Eve would have had to have married each other for the human race to continue. And we are aware that even though Cain, Abel, and Seth are mentioned in Genesis 3, 4, and 5, Genesis 5, 4 says that Adam had other sons and daughters who are not specifically mentioned in scripture. So then Cain must have taken a wife from among his own family. But someone will say, wait, didn't God prohibit such close marriages relations in the Old Testament? How then could God have allowed such incestuous relationships? with Cain and with Adam's descendants. 
Now, it is true that God did preclude close marriage relationships in the law of Moses. But remember, this prohibition did not exist, at least for the Earth's, 2000, the Earth's first 2,500 years. Even among the patriarchs, those who came in the line of Abraham before Moses and Israel, we see close marriage relationships. Abraham married his half-sister. Isaac married a close cousin. The real question is, why did God make a change to what wasn't allowed marriage relationship? Because it was allowed in the beginning. But then it was changed in the law of Moses. Why did God make this change? We can't say for sure. There may be multiple reasons, but we can make at least one good guess. Knowing the originally perfect state of creation and the discoveries of modern genetics, one reason that God may have allowed close relatives to marry in the beginning was that genetic problems that would result from such a union were not present in human DNA at first. Today, as I'm sure you know, marriages of close relatives can result in dangerous genetic disorders. This is because human DNA has accumulated small errors over the generations. Now, it's remarkable what God accomplishes in the DNA re replication process. Indeed, this is one of the wonders of creation, but it's not a perfect process, at least after the fall. It's a very good copying procedure, but it's not perfect. And every time our DNA copies itself, very, very small errors begin to accumulate. You're likely to have the same genetic errors as your close relatives. So if you were to combine your DNA with a close relative, it would almost certainly result in serious problems for your children. However, if the DNA errors that you and your spouse have are very different from one another, they are much less likely to express, which means your child has a much greater chance of being healthy. Closer to the beginning of the human race, you wouldn't have had this issue of accumulated genetic errors since the DNA would have not have had much chance, not have had as much chance to mutate over time. So God then apparently had no problem permitting close marriages in the beginning. It was only after those errors began to accumulate and the possibility of great harm to children resulting that God in compassion forbid men and women from marrying close relatives. That is still a gracious provision from God today. We do not allow or promote marriages of close relatives because of, or because of this reason and because God specifically forbid it. So though this question, where did Cain get his wife? It's used as the gotcha to Christians to see, hey, see, you have incest in your scriptures and you promote incest. It's not really that way. There's actually a, a good reason why this would be allowed in the beginning, but later forbidden by God. There certainly is no need to contradict Genesis and suggest, as some do, that God had a separate line of humans, that God created or allowed to evolve a separate race of men and women for Cain and Adam's descendants to marry. Anyways, let me stop there. Questions about what you've heard today? Uh, Magda. Hmm. That's a really, yeah, that's a really good question. I thought about that too. I repeat your question. Why does Cain add, and I will be hidden from your face whenever he's talking about the punishments that God has given him? I don't know the answer. What's really interesting about that is that, as you said, God didn't say that. And it might not actually be true. Cain is suggesting that God will no longer show any goodness to Cain. Often, for someone to shine his face, rather, let me say it this way, 
when God's face is said to show on someone, to shine on someone, that is a mark of favor, that is a mark of blessing. And Cain assumes that that will no longer be the case for him. I'll no longer see any blessing. I'll no longer see any goodness from you, God. Now, maybe he's just being hyperbolic. He's saying this punishment is so great, there's basically no good in life anymore. Or maybe he just assumes that there could be no, no possible good for him left. The other possibility is that because he says specifically, not that you will not show your face, but I will be hidden from your face. I will be hidden. Who's going to hide him? The thought came to my mind that he's suggesting that he himself could be, he could hide himself from God. He could go to, to some place where God could no longer see him, which would be an error, right? Because that's what Adam and Eve tried to do. They tried to hide from God after they committed sin, but they couldn't. And certainly that has been the error of man through all through the scriptures and even today that we think we can hide ourselves from God. So I'd have to think about this more, but the possibilities that occur to my mind is this is an expression of hyperbole. He's saying basically there's no good in life anymore because of the punishments you've put upon me. This is, or this is uh, an error in his actually thinking that he'll no longer be subjected to God's presence, that he can actually be hidden from God. But it is a very intriguing statement because certainly you're right. God did not say that specifically. Interesting question. Other questions? Yes, uh, Isaiah. Hmm. Right, so that's a good question. Isaiah, you mentioned, Cain says, whoever finds me will kill me. Let's suggest that there's a bunch of people on the earth rather than just Adam and Eve because Cain is the firstborn and then there's Abel. So is it just the four of them? And with Abel gone, there's just Adam and Eve left? Well, because the next couple of verses mention eight, uh, Cain's wife, the suggestion is indeed that there were other sons and daughters even at this time. We actually read in verses 16 to 17 that he goes off by himself with his wife and he founds a city and he has a whole line of descendants. So that does suggest that there were already more children of Adam and Eve and there would be more even after this instance. I mentioned Genesis 5, 4 does say that Adam had other sons and daughters. So this is a good example of just because the Bible didn't say specifically yet that there are other children, there definitely were. So yeah, that's a good question. Other questions? Uh, yes. <laughs> right yeah good question so if he says i'm going to be a vagrant and a wanderer if god actually curses him as a vagrant and a wanderer then how is it that he's still able to have a wife found a city and have descendants doesn't that mean he's no longer alone that's a good question i have to think about that a little bit more i think certainly the answer is not entirely literal it's not that he's literally going to be by himself just wandering around the earth, but that more figuratively, he's going to be a fugitive. He's going to be someone who is not going to be at rest. He's going to be someone who certainly is going to be rejected by the earth itself. As he says, the earth is no longer going to yield its fruit to you. So in a sense, it's like he doesn't have a place on the earth anymore. Now, he literally still exists on the earth, and he can still live on the earth, and he still has a family, but there's something about his lifestyle going forward that's going to be like a wanderer and a fugitive. That's my thinking on that right now. Yeah, Dwayne.
Right. Yeah, that's a good observation, Dwayne. I'll just repeat what you said briefly that in Genesis 4.25 with Seth's birth, Eve does say this is given by God as a replacement for Abel who was killed. And so this takes place after Cain's murder. I think you're right and from what we already said that for Cain to have a wife, there had to have been already other children from Adam and Eve. And it's possible he already had other sons. And this is merely... Eve speaking of a replacement for Abel. It is also possible that he only had other daughters at this point, and that's why Cain has his has his wife, and that this is the this is another son, or even that this is the third son. It's possible. I'm not sure that's entirely likely. I think we can understand that merely as Eve saying, I lost Abel, but God has given me another son. Not necessarily the third son. It could have been, but not necessarily. But yeah, that's a good observation. I think we have time for one more question. Okay, well, if you have other questions on this passage or things related to it, please email me. Next week, we're going to step out of Genesis for a moment to take a broader biblical look at the topic that we've really been coming back to again and again, and that is the heart of man. What is man's heart as a result of the fall, and what is the solution to it? We're going to hear the entire biblical witness and consider our response. So I look forward to talking about that with you next week. Let's close in prayer. Well, Lord God, when we consider these two chapters, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, on the one hand, God, we are, we feel the heaviness of sin. We look at Adam and Eve's responses to you, to one another. We look at Cain and what he did and how he responded to you. And we say, that is so evil. That is so wrong. That is so senseless. How could they do that? Yet, God, we know that is the human condition now. That's the way we all are. That's the way we all were until you saved us. And now we do still have the old man with us. But, God, we thank you that we are not, we're not caught in darkness like we were. Lord, where we loved sin. We could not do anything else other than sin because we loved sin too much. We found various ways to sin. Even in our so-called righteous deeds, they were just other forms of sin. Our works righteousness was sin before you. But God, you had mercy on us. You showed us the same radical kindness that you showed to Adam and Eve and even to Cain. And we praise you for that, God, because you are a God worthy of praise. You are a holy God, and God, you have to be, because that is so worthy. But God, you are also so kind. You are full of loving kindness. It overflows in you. And we thank you, God, that we can be those who experience the, the blessing of that. God, as the worship service continues today, I pray that for those listening, they would be caught up in thinking about how good you are in both your holiness and in your grace. Lord, that they would fear using your kindness as an excuse to sin. And Lord, instead, that they would love to run to you, to walk with you, and to make you known so that others might be freed from the bondage of the devil and the bondage to sin. That Cain was not freed, but men can be freed, Lord, if they will turn to you. I pray that message would be on our lips, God. You'd make us bold to declare it. In Jesus' name, amen.